Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Murder on the Space Coast. General memories were that I felt um, after we had followed all the facts that we, Sheriff's Office particularly, had zeroed in on the correct suspect. Bailey is under this dead man's fingernail. Your hair is clutched in his hand. Explain to a jury how your hair is a dead man's hand. Explain to a judge and jury how your DNA is underneath his fingernails. This is your DNA, and your DNA is under his fingernails, and there's hair in his hand. I did not understand. Your DNA is there. I'm John A. Torres, and welcome back to Murder on the Space Coast, Where Justice Lies. In 2006, Jeffrey Charles Abramowski was convicted and sentenced to life in prison for the brutal 2002 Clawhammer murder of 78-year-old Dick Crandall. Last episode, we finally heard from Dick's family, his daughter and granddaughter, during Jeff's 2006 sentencing hearing. They believed Jeff is guilty, and it turns out they still do. The family had previously sent me a formal statement that I would like to read. It was sent by Dick's granddaughter, Terry, and her mother, Judy Watts, who is, of course, Dick's daughter. Before you listen, keep in mind a few episodes ago we heard from Dick's other granddaughter, Stacy Swank, who does believe Jeff is innocent. Quote, Courtney Crandall has one surviving daughter and three granddaughters. My cousin Stacy Swank has been estranged from our family for over 25 years. She was not close to my grandparents when they passed, and the detectives did not contact her when my grandfather was murdered. She was living across the country and completely uninvolved. She never met Rob Parker or any of the prosecuting team. She did not attend either of the trials or any of the hearings. She did not review the evidence. She did not clean up the murder scene. She did not see my bludgeoned grandfather's corpse. She did not even attend my grandfather's funeral, or my grandmother's just one week later. She knows nothing about the guilt of Jeffrey Abramowski. Like others, in our hearts, we may always believe Michael Bruce Foley was involved, but the family and myself do not believe that Jeffrey is innocent. After sitting through both trials and reviewing each and every piece of evidence and each hour of interrogation of multiple witnesses, my mom and I wholeheartedly believe we have the right perpetrator in prison. I am very sorry for the loss that Jeffrey's children have felt. I cannot imagine what they have endured. They too are casualties in all of this. I have an enormous amount of compassion for his son and daughter and have thought of them often over the last 17 years. With that said, let me be very clear. The family of Courtney 
Dick Crandall, 100% stand behind the guilty verdict and life sentence without parole that Abramowski received. We thank Gary Harrell and Rob Parker for their dedication to this case and seeing it through. Jeffrey is not an innocent man, and Courtney Crandall's family will fight to keep Abramowski in prison. Closed quote. Okay, so there's a lot there, including implications that they believe Bruce Foley might have been involved in the murder as well. I'm going to try and speak more with them about this and hopefully have an update in future episodes. Now, over these last nine episodes, we've heard an awful lot. Some the jury that convicted Jeff also heard, but there's an awful lot the jury did not get to hear. In the first episode, I presented the state's case as to why they believed Jeff Abramowski was the killer. But now I'm going to methodically put together his defense. Not just a defense, but a case for actual innocence. Now keep in mind, this is a defense Jeff didn't get because... In part, his attorney, Laura Seamers, who has mental illness and was off her meds, was experiencing a psychotic breakdown when she took over Jeff's case 10 days before trial. Again, she had never done a murder trial, never done a trial involving DNA, and had only handled two felonies previously. Now, maybe if she had more time, but we'll never know. Okay, so the first thing I'm going to do is attempt to impeach the state's witnesses. This means calling into question the reliability of the witness so much that the jury gives their testimony very little weight. Now, the first few witnesses called by the state were responding officers and CSI technicians whose testimony is pretty straightforward. See, the state needs to establish the fact that a body was discovered and that a homicide took place before they can convict someone of murder. Still, there are a few things that make you scratch your head, like the fact that crime scene techs vacuumed the floor of the trailer, the items they collected were never tested. Why not? That's a great question, right? I mean, there was probably hair on the floor and other items that might have shed a little bit more light on this case. Also, no blood splatter expert was brought in to determine how the spray patterns on the wall occurred. Why is this important? Well, It could help determine the height of the killer or killers and where they were standing in relation to Dick. They say it was cast-off patterns off of the weapons used. In other words, you swing down and you hit, then your arm swings back, and that leaves a spray pattern on the wall. Jeff Abramowski was six foot tall, while Judy Foley, Bruce Foley, and Rita Akeridge were much shorter. There was also a question about the chain of custody regarding the evidence collected. The person who dropped off the evidence at the medical examiner's office was not the same person who signed out the evidence from the crime scene. Evidence that included those nail clippings, which, as you know, were so critical in convicting Jeff. Now, there's no evidence of tampering, but if I was preparing Jeff's defense, I'd certainly raise that issue. And Laura Seamers did, and she addressed it again in her closing. Virginia Casey dropped off the nail clippings to the medical examiner, but the envelope was signed Lucy Ross for... Virginia Casey. Odd. That implies that it was not always with Virginia Casey. Right? After the crime scene text, the state called in the county medical examiner at the time, Dr. Paulino Vassallo. He stated that when he examined Dick's body on Tuesday, remember a full day after Dick was found beaten to death, only early decomposition had set in. 
we know that the temperature in Dick's trailer was a balmy 82 degrees. Now, Vasallo is all over the place with his testimony, and he refuses to give any indication as to when he thinks Dick was murdered. He keeps on saying that the time of death was any time after he was last seen alive and before the body was found. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. The reason it matters, well, we'll go over that again soon, but for now I'll just say that the state puts a lot of focus on a particular day when they thought Dick was killed. That day is Saturday, two days before his body is found. Now, according to a few websites I researched regarding human decomposition, and from Vasallo's testimony and from photos I have, the state of Dick's body when it was found is not consistent with having been killed more than 48 hours before being found. There would be obvious bloating in the body as the gases build. Plus, Vasallo states the body is in full rigor mortis. Well, rigor mortis only lasts between 36 and 48 hours after death before the body becomes flaccid again. Since the body was in a rigid state on Tuesday during the autopsy, it makes it highly unlikely that Dick was killed on Saturday. But here's the thing. Remember how I said that just about everybody lies in this case? Well, Vasallo told Jeff's first attorney, Steve Weisoker, during a pretrial deposition that he estimates Dick's body had been lying there for about 12 hours or so. Now, during the trial, he backed off that statement because, I'd argue, it did not fall into the police and prosecution timeline that they wanted to present. And what timeline is that? Well, they made a point of suggesting that Dick was likely killed on Saturday, the same day they produced two witnesses who placed Jeff at the Mobile Land by the Sea trailer park. Remember, they brought to the witness stand the woman who found the body, Valeria David, and Chris Vasquez, who says he dropped Jeff off at the park at 8 a.m. Saturday morning. We heard how Jeff's lawyer, Laura Seamers, did a decent job in poking holes in their testimonies. But here is what the jury never got to hear. There are at least five witnesses who spoke to police who say they saw Dick throughout the day on Saturday. That's right, five witnesses. And none of them say one word about seeing Jeff Abramowski. These witnesses raise serious questions about whether Dick was killed on Saturday. The first is Dick's neighbor, Janet Ogerman. She tells police that she went to a place called the Rocket Liquor Lounge in Satellite Beach with Dick on Saturday to have breakfast. Now, the first part of this audio is a little wonky, and her annoying little dog is barking throughout. But you'll notice the officer's surprise when he repeats her answer that she was with Dick on Saturday. How often has you, have you seen him over the last about a month, month and a half? I'm talking about once a week. I saw him uh, last time I seen him was Saturday morning. I took him to breakfast at the Rocket Liquors. We had free breakfast there, and I thought I'd turn him on to it and eat two big, huge plates full of food. <laughs> I must like it. Everybody in the bar. And my God. Okay, let me just clarify. I apologize. This this last Saturday, you guys went to breakfast. You're, you're shaking your head, yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you won't pick it up. <laughs> yeah. Um, where was it exactly that you went to breakfast? Rocket Liquors. Rocket Liquors. Is that the one over in Satellite Beach? Yeah, right across the bridge. Okay. So, do you remember what time you guys got there? About 10. Okay. And you recall about what time you left? Um, it was about, they asked me to work because the girl in the liquor store was growing up. She was sick, so um, they asked me to work in. I came back to work at 1 o'clock, so we had to leave at about 12, 12.30. Okay. 
Okay. How did you guys get there? Okay, so she also says that after breakfast, she had to get ready for work at the liquor store until 4. Those are the kinds of details people remember. You tend to remember times when they revolve around work times, okay? So we hear that Dick was alive through breakfast, and we also hear that he was dressed up. Remember, when he was found, Dick was shirtless and just wearing a pair of shorts. Now, Janet Ogerman's story was backed up by another neighbor, Starlet Bowles. The jury never heard from her either, but cops talked to her, and we have that interview. Starlet and her husband bought a trailer from Dick and were fixing it up. Here is what she had to say about seeing Dick and Janet together that Saturday about noon after they had returned from breakfast. A lady on the left hand, her name's Janet, and that is the last time I seen Mr. Crandall was with her. And do you remember what day that, that was? That was Saturday. This past Saturday? Yes, it was. And she, um, she I, I never seen them leave. I really wasn't paying too much attention, you know. In the morning time, I get up and do my cleaning and stuff. I noticed he was there. I thought he was going to come over. Well, evidently, you know, he, she came over and asked me if she could have a cigarette, and I said yes, and she, my husband said to her, says, hey, tell Dick to come here for a minute, you know, I need to talk to him for a second, and that's when we showed him the bathroom, and he, he came over, well, when he was walking up the steps. And that was a Saturday? Right, okay. and he came in and looked at the bathroom and stuff, and that's when my husband said something to him about him having a black eye, because he had a black eye. Who um, Mr. Crandall. Mr. Crandall had a black yes, eye? Yes, which was last week, because I told my husband about it. Okay, so Janet Ogerman and Starlet Bowles corroborate each other in placing Dick at the trailer park alive Saturday morning, and neither mentions anything about seeing him with Jeff. And just to hammer home that Dick was apparently seen without Jeff and alive and well at about noon that Saturday, we have Starlet's husband, David Bowles. Well, on the west side of us, we have an old couple, and then on the east side of us, we have a, a single lady, I don't know her name, but... She, I, I guess they went out to breakfast that morning from what she told us. That was Saturday morning. And then I see Mr. Crandall at noontime coming out of the trailer next door to us at the lady's house. And I said, Mr. Crandall, would you come over to our house and check out the bathroom that I had just redone? He came over. He was there for probably five minutes. He was really nice. It didn't appear to me that he had been drinking that day. That last comment is in response to the first time that Bowles met Dick. He was so put off by what he experienced during that first meeting with Bruce and Dick that he nearly did not buy the trailer. Take note of how he describes Bruce. Was anybody else with Mr. Crandall? There was a blonde-haired guy that was one of his employees, as I take it, was working with him. Did you hear the guy's name, or do you recall what his name might be? Actually, I did. Okay. Can you describe him to me? He's probably 5'4", 150 pounds, blonde hair, and it, to me it looked like he had dyed blonde hair. And to me, he, he seemed like he was mentally retarded or something because he had slurred speech, impaired movement. You indicated before we went on tape that um, if that wasn't the case and he wasn't mentally retarded, that he might appear to you to be under the influence of something? It, it seemed like both of them was actually drinking because they was acting obnoxious to each other. And they both was slurring, and this was our first impression of Mr. Crandall and the guy working with them. Did he introduce this gentleman as somebody 
uh, like an employee or a friend, or did he say who he was to him? Uh, he really didn't say nothing at the time because they was arguing back and forth trying to load Mr. Crandall's van, and he was more worried about getting the van loaded and then speaking with us. So the blonde hair guy, we didn't find out who he was. Who was more interested in, van, in loading the van? I don't understand. Mr. Crandall. What kind of van was it? Uh, the gray caravan. Okay. God's caravan. The one that's parked out here in front, front of his house. house. Yep. All right. What was he trying to load into the trailer? Uh, two two by fours and materials of wood. Okay. Okay. And, and was this other uh, little guy helping him do that? Uh, the little guy was loading it in the van, and Mr. Crandall was getting mad because he kept dinging the boards. And Mr. Crandall would say, watch out, so-and-so. He'd call him a cuss word or whatever. And then the blonde-haired guy would uh, counter-react with something vulgar to him. Like what? Like, like, I know what I'm doing, you asshole, or something like that. He, they was pretty vulgar, the first impression on both of them. Okay. It was obvious that... The blonde hair guy didn't want to take orders from Mr. Crandall. And I don't know if it would make a difference, but when we was looking at the trailer, something about the people that lived in the trailer before us didn't have no floors, and they was using a toilet out back in the shed. And the blonde haired guy with Mr. Crandall took me around the back and showed me, and he was pretty mad at Mr. Crandall for bossing him around or whatever, and he did say that Mr. Crandall pisses him off and he feel like beating him up. Okay. Um, he just told you that out of the blue. Yeah, huh? and that struck me funny, you know, because that almost made me not want to buy the trailer. Okay, but you, did you decide to buy the trailer? Yes, we did. Interesting, right? Now back to our timeline. And remember, this is Saturday, the same day that police and the prosecutor are suggesting Jeff was at Dick's trailer park at 8 o'clock in the morning, although he denies being there, and killing Dick. Now we have Kathy Eberhardt who says she spent the afternoon with Dick. I had not seen him other than Saturday when he was here and I noticed he had black eye. And I knew he had been buying and selling a lot of trailers. And I always told him to be careful because he always had a lot of he got oh, to talk loud because we're on well, the table. Boston, always had a wad. And I thought, you know, Dick, you know some characters. I'm a character, but you know some characters. Tattoos, you know, earrings, and, and, you know, some real precarious folks that he eventually started coming by alone. And he has a girlfriend, which I tried calling and they did not answer, which I thought was strange. Who was that? That her name is Judy. She was a live-in girlfriend. Okay. But he had been with her sister. And I quit flashing that money. And he, and he tend to have some deadbeats around that I ask him not to bring by anymore. When was the last day that you saw Dick? Saturday. Saturday. The conversation continues. And the gist is that Eberhardt says Dick swung by and they looked at some antiques that afternoon. She never mentioned Jeff being with him. Now, we haven't mentioned this until now, but the cops were looking closely at Dick's relationship with Eberhardt as well. See, she and Dick allegedly did a lot more than trade in antiques. And this first clip is very telling. She tells police that she's been expecting them. Hmm. Prior to us walking up here, well, prior to us knocking on your door, you advised that you were expecting us or... Uh, or was going to call, just, I don't know. Um, I haven't seen Dick in a, in a while and I was concerned. What was the last he, time he saw him? Well, as a matter of fact, he has aluminum legs of mine that I lent him to do a flea market. 
we used to do the land and run around. He was kind of wanting to absorb my knowledge for free, you know, which was okay. But then again, he had loaned me some money and I paid him back. And um, I owe him a little money now, which he was being very, very nice about. Okay. I mean, he wasn't here about money Saturday, which I told him, I said, Dick, you know, I'm going into a slow season now, you know, and unless I go up north, I'm not going to make it. Cause what time Saturday did you see him? Afternoon. Oh, it was way in the afternoon, but not late. I don't believe it was late afternoon. Between 3 and 5? Or three or 2. Say anywhere from, I'm just ballparking, okay? Yeah. Two, to, 2 to 5 to 6. So. Okay, to recap. Dick has breakfast with Janet Ogerman, and then he goes into the home of David Bowles to look at work that he had been doing. Then he goes and spends time with Kathy Eberhardt in Cocoa Beach during the mid to late afternoon. Now, you just heard her tell police she owed him money. And as you're about to hear, the tone of the interview changes when agent Dale Young starts pressing Eberhardt about her dealings with Dick. If I'm Jeff's attorney, I'm bringing all these people in to raise questions about when Dick was killed and why it doesn't matter that Jeff was seemingly placed at the trailer park on Saturday, though nobody saw him. Back to Kathy. What you can do is you can be absolutely as honest as you can with us about everything because okay. because if you if you don't tell the truth about some little things now, uh-huh. we find out they're not true, that's going to cause us to divert our energies and come back. We're concerned about finding who harmed Dick. Okay? Yes, I, I... Now, we've been told some things by different people. When people from different areas tell the same story, it's usually pretty credible. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're told that you take Oxycontin from Dick and you resell it. No, I have a prescription. So does he. What does that make? It doesn't matter that you have a prescription. You're not and saying I have a good antique business. You're not saying he didn't do it. You're just saying you have a prescription. Yeah, and I, and I have a good okay? antique business. I'm so telling you, if you're not honest with us at this point... I couldn't jeopardize that. Are you listening at all? Yes, I'm li- of course I'm listening. If you're not Actually, honest... Actually, I shouldn't okay. be talking to you at all without an attorney. Money owed. Alleged drug dealings. Yet another person with a possible motive for wanting Dick gone? Of course... Kathy Eberhardt was never implicated by police as having any involvement in Dick's death. I just wanted to make that clear. But I digress. We're talking about the people who saw Dick that Saturday. Next up on the hit parade was Ernest Soares, who was a maintenance man in the area of the park that Dick had just moved to. And he said he saw Dick that afternoon on his lawn. Is there anyone else there? Um, two, two young gentlemen. Well, 17, 18 years old. 1980. Were they white males? White. Yes. you recall what they looked like? Uh, yes, I saw them again. Yes, I would. What color hair they had or anything? Uh, they had like a, one was a blonde and another one was like a brunette. So a light brown hair. Did they have shirts or anything on? Uh, one had a shirt, one didn't. Which one had the shirt? The one with the uh, brown hair. So the blonde teenager is walking around Dick's front lawn with no shirt on. Not a big deal, right? Well, except that what Ernest says here reminded me of something I heard in an interview with another neighbor. Here is Agent Carlos Reyes interviewing Eric Sprague, who we heard from in an earlier episode. He, too, lived in the trailer park. Tell us a little about what he looked like so if we saw him, we could say, hey, that's him. 205. 205, um, hairy, shaved face, mushroom bowl, dyed blonde hair. These were shaved, had blonde hair up here dyed. Mushroom top haircut. Five, nine. 
lot on top. And you said about 5'9", 205? Yeah, he's kind of chunky. Built chunky or just regular Fat. chunky? Fat chunky. Okay. He didn't know how to... So he was hairy, mushroom top haircut with blonde dyed on top. He did a lot maybe, of drugs. Maybe an earring, the drugs. Hairy body that you use. Right. Um, never had a shirt on. Hmm. Bruce had dyed blonde hair and never had a shirt on. Now he was in his early 30s, but he had sort of a baby face. Could he have been the person Ernest Swords witnessed talking to Dick in his yard? I want you to remember that dyed blonde hair. I'm going to be addressing that shortly. Last up is the only person that the jury heard from during Jeff's trial on his behalf. Now, she spent a very brief time on the witness stand being questioned by Jeff's attorney, Laura Seamers. I'm thinking she could have gotten a little bit more traction from this witness. Anyway, here's Jennifer Orr telling a Brevard County Sheriff's agent about the last time she saw Dick. When was the last time you saw the older gentleman? On Saturday. Him and his friend, I saw. It would be about, well, I washed my car at like four, it might have been about five o'clock. Okay, so it sure sounds like there are plenty of people who say Dick was alive at least through the end of the day Saturday. At least enough people to raise some questions about the police and prosecutor's timeline. Now, I feel as if we've poked enough holes in the whole Saturday thing. Numerous people saw Dick alive, and none of them mentioned seeing Jeff. I'm going to pause here for a moment and present to you what could be a more viable time frame for Dick's murder to have taken place. Again, the jury never heard this, but is it possible that Jennifer Orr was awakened at the exact time of the murder? Now, it's important to note that Jennifer's bedroom window faced Dick's new trailer, the one he was moving into. Because when she's asked by agents if she noticed anything unusual after seeing Dick late Saturday afternoon, she tells them something happened at about 3 o'clock Monday morning, about six hours before Dick was found dead. Well, this morning, um, I heard my cat got up on my bed and started growling. That was, uh, it was, well, I looked at the clock, it was 3.23. And I'm, I looked at her, I'm like, you know, I don't have to get up for like an hour, like two hours, go back to sleep. And she just kept growling, and she jumped on my bed, and she hit me with her head. Like the, I thought maybe she was hungry. So I um, asked her what was wrong. And I'm talking to her cat. But I'm like, what's wrong? And she kept growling, and she got up on, I have a day bed, and there's a bar. And she put her hind legs on the bar and was, like, looking at the window. And I was like, and then I heard some noises. I'm like, there's probably just a cat or some kids, because the kids always walk up and down the road. So I was like, okay, no big deal. So I got up and went to the bathroom, and then I, like, that lay back down and she kept growling and I'm like will you be quiet what window was she looking at she was looking at my bedroom window which would face the neighbor's house across the street okay um the opposite direction of where the older man lives yes okay like he lives directly behind my window okay all right so I she kept growling so I got back up and looked out the door because I just figured maybe there was a cat in the yard by the lights so I didn't see anything so I just lay back down, and I was going to look out the window, but I was just decided not to. So, and then, so I didn't think anything, so I went back to bed. And then this morning when I got up, I went outside, and I looked across the street, and the light in um, the older man's yard was on, which is weird, because it's never usually on when I go to work. And I was like, oh, no big deal, maybe they're just, and their door's open, which I still notice is open. But when I asked my mom, she said it's been open the last week, so 
And then I got in my car and rolled down the window because I was hot. And I heard someone yell, shut up, F you. And I don't know if it was coming from there. It was coming from that direction. Either the older man's house or behind his house somewhere. And I stopped and looked back and it just, the house looked weird to me for some reason. I had a weird feeling when I looked at it. When was the last time you went to work or when you noticed that the light, um, the outside light would have been off? Well, I know, I know it was off yesterday. It was off yesterday morning? I'm trying to remember. I know it was off. It was just weird because it was glaring on their door, like, because it was kind of weird looking out this morning, like, red looking. Okay. And it just, it was glaring. And it was just, because by then it should be off because it's sunny, but, it's, like, it's already getting light. Because our light goes off. And if it's on a manual thing, it would be already off. Okay. And I know it was off Saturday morning. Okay, his light was definitely off Saturday morning. It was just weird. I think that's why I looked over there, because the light was, it's never on. Okay, what about Sunday morning? I'm trying to, I would... I can't be 100% sure, but I mean, I don't think it was on yesterday. A late Sunday or early Monday murder of Dick would certainly explain why the body was not more decomposed. And if the culprits were Judy, Bruce, and Rita, it would explain why it took them supposedly three days to make it from Brevard County to Alabama, and why they could only produce two receipts from Saturday before the police interviewed them on Tuesday. That's because in this scenario, they drove back to Brevard Sunday, killed Dick, and made it back to Alabama in the 10 hours it normally takes. Remember, the only hotel receipt that they produce is from Monday in Bessemer, Alabama, despite, according to them, having stayed at two or three hotels along the way. Okay, now, so this was supposed to be the final episode of the series, but obviously I didn't quite wrap up my case for actual innocence, and we're already running a little long. So we're going to have to do this in a few parts. I promise we will get to the bleach blonde hair and where we'll hear an awful lot more from Donald Hughes. Jeff gets in the car and he's got a paper bag with him. Okay? Now, I mean the type of grocery paper bag that may be a foot and a half long, you know. Brown paper bag. Brown paper bag that I couldn't see through. Now, somebody gets in my car with, with, with that and I'm like, what'd you do, bring your lunch? Well, we had returned from dinner on, on that day, Mother's Day, and sheriff cars and things were at that residence, and our neighbors were all standing around talking, and somebody in that group of people uh, had mentioned that it was Judy's son, Brian, uh, had gotten to a confrontation, actually a physical confrontation with Dick, and um, he had left, I believe, before the sheriff arrived, but one of his comments was made that he would be back, you know, he would be back to get him. To get him? To get him. And who are we, who are we referring to that he was going to come back to get, just for Kate, just so we know? Uh, Dick. That's all for now. Remember, if you enjoy investigative journalism like this, please help support us by subscribing to Florida Today by going to MurderOnTheSpaceCoast.com. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And follow the podcast at 321Murder. For more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to MurderOnTheSpaceCoast.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you 
by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network.